Welcome to Covenant Conversations, episode number eight. I, Shweta Rao, your host, have the pleasure of welcoming not one, but two partners from Morrison Forrester on a podcast today, Benoit Levine and Matthew Dunlop. Ben advises both underwriters and borrowers and has vast experience in various complex cross-border finance matters, including acquisition finance, general corporate lending, asset-based lending, restructurings, and workouts. Matthew primarily advises private equity and corporate clients focusing on complex cross-border transactions, including high yield and crossover debt offerings, acquisition financings, and liability management exercises. Hi, Ben and Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us today at uh, in Covenant Conversations. When we were previously talking, you mentioned that you are coming across several situations where there are either flexibilities in documents, specifically around ratio calculations, and also gray areas in documents around consent levels that are particularly intriguing. So tell tell us what you've seen in that. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Rod. I think I think this has been coming up, obviously, because of the current economic circumstances, and um, you know everyone, including ourselves at Mofo, um, looking into ways for companies to be able to raise additional liquidity. Um, I should say that the views that that Matthew and I are expressing on this are, you know, our respective views, not necessarily those of Morrison and Forrester. Um, but anyhow, the the, um, the the things that we've been looking at in terms of you know additional liquidity touch upon what a lot of people have been touching upon, obviously, in terms of priming. Um, but we've had mm-hmm. to dig into slightly more, um, you know, deeper into specific issues, including uh, what we'll talk about now, which are flexibility in terms of uh, testing and currents uh, and, and, and things like limited condition acquisition concepts trickling in um, to kind of broader concepts and document flexibility as well as other ways when, say, the company has exhausted um, its basket capacity or its other avenues without lenders pulling the plug, other ways that lenders can look to, um, you know, help the company without necessarily signing a, a formal waiver at that point in time. Okay, that's really interesting. So some of our subscribers and listeners might not know what limited condition acquisition is, so why don't we explain that to them? Yeah, sure. And this is Matthew, um, and, and thanks also for, uh, for having us here. Um, so really, you know, as, as Ben mentioned, you know, times like this, uh, it, you know, everyone kind of goes back to existing documentation and, you know, focuses uh, on, you know, the text and, and kind of do, everyone does a forensic analysis in terms of finding flexibility um, that you might not have otherwise thought existed or might not have needed. So just one of those that we wanted to flag um, is this, uh, you know, what I would call kind of the evolution of covenant and ratio testing in, you know, your, your traditional high yield bond documentation, um, which you also see in the CovLite world as well. Um, and so you kind of start with the, the original premise that uh, incurrence covenants are tested at the time you take an action, um, you know, as opposed to uh, the maintenance, the traditional bank maintenance covenants that you would find um, in your traditional bank loan agreements. And so this was, you know, if you wanted to incur debt, it was the date that you actually incurred the debt that you would test your covenants um, at the date that you would make a dividend, you would test your RP uh, capacity uh, in your restricted payment covenant to see if you have the ability to make that dividend. 
Now, over time, this has um, evolved to uh, provide, the you know, documentation has evolved to provide a bit more flexibility for an issuer or a borrower. And the first, the first uh, step in the evolution, you saw the introduction of this idea, the construct of limited condition acquisitions and the ability essentially to test your covenants. Uh, and for the most part, this would be testing your debt incurrence covenants at the time that you entered into the definitive documentation uh, with respect to a defined limited condition acquisition. And what that essentially was, was your, you know, your typical certain funds, LBO commitment papers, for instance. Um, and, and so you had the ability to test at the date of, you ent of entering into those documents or at the date of actually incurring the debt related to the acquisition in question. And so the idea was if you tested at the earlier period um, at the definitive agreement date and you had capacity and you, um, you, know, were, you, you um, complied with your covenants, you wouldn't have to retest uh, at the date of the actual incurrence, regardless of whether there was a, uh, a negative impact on, you know, on uh, in the financial condition of the business in the interim. Um, and so you, you bought yourself a little bit of flexibility there. And then the, the next step in that evolution of flexible covenant testing followed shortly thereafter, where the limited condition flexibility um, in terms of uh, covenant compliance calculation um, expanded to essentially these days it's any transaction so it's not limited to just your uh, certain funds acquisition this is um, you can test any action uh, you know whether it's entering into an investment or a merger or making a dividend and if there's any definitive documentation with respect to that action you can test it at an earlier date and then essentially grandfather that action um, through the covenants um, and, and, and still be in compliance if at the date of the actual action um, you were out of compliance. So you, didn't have to, you don't have to retest. Um, so that's a bit of flexibility that I think um, issuers may be leaning on these days or looking to lean on these days um, where you can essentially document up front uh, some sort of transaction um, ensure that you are compliant with your covenants and, you know, before the, you know, the impacts, let's say of COVID-19 and let's say perhaps a decrease in EBITDA really hits the, you know, historical LTM reference period. Um, and so that you could have a, a transaction that would pass muster under the covenants uh, earlier mm -hmm. than rather kind of down the road when um, uh, your, your financial position has deteriorated. I mean, we read about these when, you know, in high yield bonds as well in, as in leveraged loans and uh, ran a quick number this morning. And the last three years, leveraged loans in Europe have had this limited condition, not acquisition, but limited condition, I call everything flexibility in about 40% of the loans. So that's quite a large number. Have you seen your clients... Um, either contemplate or actually use this flexibility? Uh, we haven't come across any specific examples yet around limited condition, you know, let's say every acquisition or, or every type of um, action um, flexibility. Yeah. We haven't seen that come up. I mean, what we have seen and what we've 
um, been addressing in terms of a lot of questions we get uh, is just kind of overall flexibility and where you might um, be able to leverage that flexibility for the current market condition. Right. Matthew, question for me. Um, when we're talking about the any transaction concept, that would also include contribution to an unrestricted subsidiary, for example, correct? Yeah, of course. I mean, you'd want to yeah. look at, at the scope of, of the term of the provisions in question. But, you know, the the ones that I usually come across, they're drafted quite broadly where it picks up any acquisition, you know, even, you know, incurrence of any liens, investments, which would include your investments in an unrestricted sub. Yeah. Um, it, it captures your, uh, you know, your run of the mill debt incurrence, restricted payments, asset sales even. So it really captures anything that could be potentially limited by your covenants, it covers. And so if, if, if for example, we're in a situation where we want to hive out the bad, the bad portions of a business because of the current economic circumstances, and, and we foresee that um, it's going to get worse and say for now we do have investment and, and, and capacity and otherwise covenant capacity, we could, we could to the extent the documentation allow it, decide to say we test now, find a buyer and then or you know, find the investment capacity and then do it a bit later, correct? That, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So I think Shweta, that's an important point, right? It's, it, it, it's similar to debt incurrence where you test today, but you only incur yep. a year down the line and then you can have deterioration. But this is the same point. It's, a, it, it, it's in my mind sort of planning the future we already know there's a trigger coming and 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 we're dealing with it now and i think that could be very very useful um for companies you know in this current economic situation but 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 otherwise yeah i mean those are the two main aspects that we've been looking at is one is debt incurrence capacity specifically priming debt and also if you can incur priming debt through an unrestricted subsidiary by transferring assets mm. to it. So, yeah, and, you know, that's yeah, essentially yeah. You, you want to, and, and the attractiveness of this is essentially locking in uh, your ratios at a more favorable point in time than exactly. later down the road. And so that, that's obviously gotta be very attractive to, uh, to borrowers out there as well as to, you know, folks creatively thinking about how best to lend to, uh, to groups. Um, and what are the other flexibilities that you were unearthing in your forensic analysis? I mean, the immediate one that everyone always asks about is EBITDA addbacks and to what extent where well, it would now be addbacks that have, you know, already been accounted for in a way could be added to EBITDA since EBITDA is probably going to fall for most borrowers going forward. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of market chatter on that, and and we've seen reports of what some have done. Some have deemed their uh, 2019 EBITDA to to be their 2021. Um, yeah. Others are kind of looking at it a quarter by basis, and then and then just looking at it in the last 12 months. Um, I think Matthew, you mentioned to me that you know you were talking with some uh, some market participants, and some were already saying, "Well, fine, let's deal with 2020." But then, what happens with 2021? Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the idea is that you know you've seen a number of uh, borrowers come to the market with waivers or, or, or you know requesting waivers from their lenders um, in terms of uh, you know whether it's financial covenant compliance or otherwise. Um, as a result of you know the current market conditions, 
And, and these are often, you know, reflected as one-off waivers. Um, and, but the question arose, right, where, you know, let's fast forward to, um, you know, January 1st, 2021, and you're going to have it, if, you know, or, or sometime thereafter, and you're going to have an entire um, year, 2020 period of uh, depressed EBITDA. Um, as a result of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, suppressed revenues, things of that nature. And so the question is, is um, or, or the, the point that came up is, well, at that time, you're just going to see another uh, wave of waivers, so to speak, um, to address uh, how best to, um, you know, deal with covenant compliance at that time. And so, you know, is this going to be, and especially if you're thinking about, you know, just how, uh, how economies react to, you know, COVID-19 and reopening uh, business, is it going to be start and stop, start and stop? Um, you know, and if that's a scenario, then you can just see, or you could potentially foresee, you know, just various um, waves of, of consent requests or waivers coming in from lenders. And then the question is, is how do you, how do you stop that? Is there a point where, you know, you have to start thinking creatively as uh, as a borrower and as a lender um, to address what may be a, a situation that's going to be here to stay, given you know existing documentation. And so I think that's an interesting question. It's one that we're going to have to, um, for the most part, wait and see what what how the market reacts. Yeah, everyone seems to be in wait and see mode right now. Um, one of the things we spoke about was with respect to waivers and how you're seeing. Um, interesting issues crop up when people, when borrowers want to pick their interest instead of paying cash so they can conserve cash. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, I, I can speak to that because I'm, I'm looking at this currently actually on, on, well, we are looking at it, I should say, currently on two transactions. Um, and I think this potentially comes up in the situation where the liquidity scenarios have been exhausted. So, you know, for example, mm -hmm. you've looked at lending to non-guarantor subs. Um, you've looked yeah. at lending to SPVs outside the restricted group, layering, um, unrestricted subfinancings, using, you know, any available basket, including, for example, sale and leasebacks or cap leases. Mm -hmm. And so you're then faced with a situation where, or maybe faced with a situation where there just isn't, ability to pump money into the system and the sponsor is not willing to do so for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, the interest payment date is coming up, but the lenders don't kind of want to kind of pull the plug just yet, potentially because, you know, we're still in this uncertainty. Um, we don't know when lockdown will be fully, you know, when we're all coming out of lockdown. Some companies, <clears throat> as soon as we come out of that, their, you know, their revenues will spike. And so things should kind of even out and so the lenders are kind of still in this wait and see mode and they still believe in the credit and so one of the things that um, lenders may consider to do is pick their interest and and so you know the cash pay portion becomes becomes picking for a period of time and I think the the, the interest there is to di di uh, distinguish pardon me between pay if you can and pay if you want. I think lenders will want to be in a pay if you can scenario if you're, if you're, if you're thinking at it with your lender hat on, which essentially means that as soon as um, the interest can come back to be cash pay, um, we flick back the switch and, and, and turn back the payments. But in any event, the ability to go and, and, and pick the interest, 
um, does raise interesting questions in terms of consent levels. And obviously the levels in the detail and the documentation needs to be to be reviewed, but essentially um, it hinges on the concept of affected lender. Um, and mm -hmm. you know documentation in, in, in Europe is slightly different uh, perhaps than in the US. Um, and the evolution in Europe has been that, well, first of all, you used to not even have uh, structural, uh, structural changes, which is where the affected lender construct comes through. And that essentially allows um, documentation to be amended to, to, to change the key commercial terms, including when payments are made, including payments of interest. Um, the evolution used to be that this wasn't there. You needed you know, your required lender or majority lender consent just to make that change. Um, structural adjustments then came in and it was majority lender plus affected lender which kind of like well why you know how is that an evolution and I think a lot of the documentation now just hinge on the affected lender construct and so um, the idea there is that if one lender wants to pick but another doesn't and let's assume that that is sufficient for the liquidity analysis for the company um, do we have to go to all lenders or can one lender just decide to do so and you know, again, you need to look at the documentation, but if we've got a um, very loose, if I can call it that, structural adjustment provision, then you should be allowed to do that. One thing to bear in mind is that um, there is an argument, and I, um, I don't disagree with it, that picking otherwise cash pay interest is an incurrence in indebtedness because um, it is an increase in commitments. And so it's important to see whether there's also debt capacity when you're doing that. Now, fortunately, mm -hmm. certain documents actually just carve out the picking component from the definition of indebtedness. So you've got, you know, all the limbs that yeah. go to whatever it is, you know, 20 limbs or what have you. There usually is the however at the end of the indebtedness paragraph that says the following elements yeah. are not indebtedness. And there sometimes is in there um, the concept of picking, which is really, really helpful because then you don't even have to worry about the debt and currents capacity. That's that's really interesting. There's there is so many layers of analysis involved to answer the kind of questions that are coming up now. And you know, perhaps there are questions coming up now that were not contemplated at the time the documents were. No, that's drafted. absolutely right. As we come out of any economic downturns. Um, and look back, we always kind of draft for what's just happened, not we can't predict the future. No one knew COVID-19 would be this. So here we are. And we still don't know what the ex full extent Absolutely. of it's going to be. Absolutely. So. I agree. <laughs> yeah. um, so this is the time to pull out your crystal balls. And <laughs> um, from a lawyer's perspective, what, what do you think will change in documents as a result of this crisis? I'll take a I'll take a stab at that on the on the high yield yeah. side and you know which also might re be reflected in uh, in in loan world Covlight loan world. So uh, I, you know I, I I foresee a couple of things perhaps. Um, one is you know given the impact that um, you know the pandemic has had on auditors finalizing auditors and companies finalizing audits. Um, you know, financial statements and the like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some additional flexibility being added into the reporting covenants for, um, you know, the delivery of, of your annual or quarterly reports and something along the lines of, you know, if 
if for um, you know some sort of force majeure type event, including including pandemics, mm-hmm. um, it won't be a, an event of default if you know a third party, namely your auditor, um, can't finalize the audit of um, or can't finalize the review of um, your financial statement. Something along those lines. I mean, there's always you know that, right. that, that's kind of low hanging fruit because the reporting covenants always have or a lot of times they have grace periods already built into it, but something that specifically yeah. and definitively uh, doesn't make it a default or an event of default, which has some ramifications on, you know, potential use of uh, debt or RP baskets, given the way that it's drafted. If it's, if you can't utilize a basket uh, during a default or an event of, event of default, you know, something like that won't be helpful on the report mm-hmm. side. Um, I think you'll see some, you know, as we discussed earlier about EBITDA and uh, let's say consolidated net income definitions, I think you'll see some um, overwrought uh, kind of specifications drafted into those, into some of those provisions. Um, I think, you know, probably just specifically calling out pandemics or maybe adding in some additional flexibility uh, based on lessons learned from the impact on financials uh, during this crisis. Uh, one thing, you know, that might be a bit controversial that, you know, you might see or, or someone might try to at least uh, test the waters with would be, uh, you know, tweaking the definition of indebtedness to the effect that you would, um, you know, any, some sort of regulatory debt facility or government-backed debt facility, mm-hmm. so essentially your government rescue funds, would be carved out of the definition of indebtedness with appropriate, you know, firewalls and parameters so that, you know, a company could avail themselves or a group could avail themselves of essentially government rescue financing without having to be concerned about tripping up their covenants um, and without having Mm. to go to, you know, go, especially on the bond side, go through the long process or somewhat, you know, lengthy process of, you know, getting consents from uh, from note holders. And so, you know, you've seen you've seen the introduction of this of this term regulatory debt facility with respect to the wonderfully alliterative covid claw and um, and how that feature has been brought. How that, how that feature is, you know, has been, you know, one of the actual few surprisingly few new terms that have come out of this side of the of, of the pandemic, um, along with some, you know, a permitted lien carve out. But. I wouldn't be surprised if you, 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 someone tried out some sort of regulatory debt carve out um, for the future, just uh, you know, for rainy days. And you think the lenders would be amenable to that because the financing would only be availed off when? Yeah, I mean, I think this would be a you know, it would, and obviously the drafting would have to be fairly tight, and and um, the framework would have to work for everyone. But this would have to be something that you know, would be, uh, you know, it wouldn't be availed, you know, often by the, by the borrower or the issuer. This is something that is kind of worst case scenario. Um, if you need a lifeline, um, here it is. I, I, it's controversial because, you know, the idea being that you're incurring new debt um, and, and kind of the terms of that debt might not be amenable to um, other creditors in the cap structure, 
Um, but it's one that, mm-hmm. again, you know, I guess depending on on how tight the kind of firewall is around the drafting, um, it's one that, you know, might be, um, might be seen. Yeah, and if I can add one more, you would add the word pandemic to your material adverse cloth <laughs> definition. Good yeah, Ben, what about them. what about you on uh, in your crystal ball on the uh, on kind of the the loan side? Yeah, look, I think I think that you know the difference potentially in what I do on the loan side is you know you're, you're dealing with mid market and then big ticket and then big ticket is more the covey light and that's probably like more likely to be like the high yield. Having said that, we all know that big ticket often becomes little ticket pretty quickly. And so I think that the terms and the issues that Matthew has just been discussing, especially the one on the debt basket or the carve out from indebtedness for rescue financing provided by governments or backed by governments is definitely something that's going to start coming through, Um, especially and potentially as we go through the kind of current round of of amend and, and, and restates or waivers to deal with the immediate issues coming up on liquidity and borrowers that are sort of pre-planning ahead of time, thinking I'm, I want to bake this in for the future in the event that there is, for example, a second spike, another lockdown, what have you. Um, and so I mm-hmm. think, you know, it's, it's difficult, obviously, to um, predict the future, but I do think that those issues will be some that will be discussed in the, in the, in the following weeks and months. I think I think what other just what other point on on the whole like regulatory debt facility construct that um, you know I feel like historically once you get a defined term in the documentation then that kind of defined term you know just uh, you, you kind of roll that forward and then it comes kind of you know quickly becomes part of the a covenant package I think something to think about on the re- regulatory debt side is. How it works, and and you know the 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 lockdown or kind of the ensuring that you don't abuse that construct um, in a scenario where you have a kind of parent entity of a borrowing group of a restricted group that receives the regulatory debt proceeds and then injects that those proceeds into a group, you would you would want to ensure that. Um, you know, by doing so, you don't, you know, the borrowing group doesn't get kind of the added extra benefits of that contribution, right? So I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, additional CNI capacity for restricted payments or the ability to incur debt on a kind of one-to-one basis for, uh, for, for those, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly, for those, for those proceeds. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's, I, I think there's, uh, you know, to the extent that any of these, you know, flexibilities or these kind of you know, rainy day scenarios come to come into come to fruition. I think there's obviously going to need to be um, some protections put in there for uh, for investors as well. Absolutely, I um, in in a lawyer nerdy lawyer way, I'm looking forward to seeing your drafting on this. <laughs> All right, well, um, this is this is really great. Thank you so much for taking the time to um, record the podcast with us, and I look forward to catching up Thanks again. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Take care. Bye.